0: Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Nick Stumelanger, ILSR's Communications Manager, and I'm really excited for you to hear this week's podcast, where we are going to delve into a new guide developed by our Community Scaled Economy Initiative. Uh, my guests this week are Stacey Mitchell, a frequent host of this very podcast, co-director of ILSR and the director of our Community Scaled Economy Initiative, and Olivia Lavecchia, a research associate and excellent writer for our Community Scaled Economy Initiative. So Stacey and Olivia, welcome back to Building Local Power.
1: Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Nice to be here.
0: So this week we're going to discuss a new resource developed by YouTube called uh, a guide to policy tools that strengthen independent businesses. So Olivia, why don't you just give us an overview about um, what this resource is and why you developed it?
1: I think it can be difficult to look at just a bunch of different policy tools and to know where to start or what is the right fit for your community. So. We've decided to take what in the past have been kind of a bunch of different separate resources on our website and organize them into a platform with five planks. And the the idea is that uh, it's a place where anyone could start and kind of get a handhold on how to think about these issues and how policy can change to uh, play a really important part in rebuilding our local economies.
0: Well, that sounds great. Olivia, why don't you just give us uh, an overview of all these different planks so that uh, we can get the breadth of this?
1: We start on the most local level and then uh, kind of work our way out with these planks. And the first one is about creating a, a built environment that supports local businesses. The second one is reorganizing economic development programs. The third is enabling access to sufficient capital. Fourth implementing an equitable tax system, and fifth, promoting fair and open competition. And in each of these planks, we uh, have policy tools at the local, the state, and the federal level. Um, So there are a lot of different places to start.
0: Well, that sounds really interesting, and I think that um, it's an attractive thing for us, at least the resource guide, to be able to say these are all things that you know we've been talking about on this podcast and and throughout our website, and kind of getting them all into one spot, you know, is useful um, as we look over this type of thing to to say like, okay, here you go, here's a here's a consolidated package of all the things that you could have your community do to build your local economy.
2: That's right. I mean, I really think uh, this policy toolkit works on a couple of different levels. I mean, it works as a very practical tool. So if you're a citizens group, um, and, and you're looking to figure out how to address these issues in your community or your state or what it is that you should be asking your congressperson about, this is a great guide for being able to do that. It also works on another level, which is, you know, it really speaks to ILSR's overall thesis about what's happening in the economy. You know, uh, as we've seen more and more consolidation, a handful of companies that have gained control of a lot of different industries, this loss of small businesses and the decline of local economies, growing inequality. What our analysis shows is that those things didn't happen by happenstance. They didn't just come about, that these really are products of deliberate policy choices that have been made over the years that have favored big businesses over small that have favored consolidation over local economies. And so this uh, policy guide is a way of illustrating how that is, of showing what are the big major areas of policy that have driven consolidation and undermined local economies, and what would it look like if we made different decisions in each of those areas of policy. So it works on both of these levels, both as a guide and as an explanation for uh, what our research overall has found. And The last thing I want to say about this is that this is really a living document and so we'll be adding to it over time and we'd love to hear from listeners if you have ideas or things that you think are missing let us know.
0: So yeah let's dive in and I think um, one of the the areas that it seems that um, this is kind of most evident what you're saying that it's a it kind of tackles these systemic things that maybe a lot of people don't notice about their local economies, um, is in the section on enabling access to sufficient capital, you know, talking about who is going to be uh, lended to and what kinds of, uh, businesses or developments are going to kind of get that funding. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. One of the things that we have found that's very much undermining local businesses is that they don't have access to loans to finance their businesses, uh, The way that they used to. And the reason for that is largely that the banking industry has consolidated. Um, There are just a handful of banks now that uh, control most of the assets in the banking industry. And those giant banks really don't do a lot of lending at the local small business level. Um, It's just they are, it's as though. Um, the scale of the banking system is really mismatched to the scale of the needs in the economy. Um, So one of the things that we've seen is that uh, small business lending has declined sharply uh, over the last 20 years. And loans to large businesses and capital availability to very large companies has expanded dramatically. And so this is one of the things that's really fueling the, the kind of structural changes that we've seen in the economy. So uh, figuring out how to change that and open up more financing and get financing, get, get our collective capital really directed into the right places is a key part of this plank. And we outline a number of different ways to do that.
0: Yeah, and I recall from an earlier Building Local Power podcast episode that we had with uh, Justin Dahlheimer of the Osakis, uh Community Bank, he r- really discussed that um, the benefits of being a community bank and being able to say like I know what kinds of things are going to be valuable to this community. I know what kinds of things are. I'm going to be able to see my neighbor at the grocery store and like talk to them about these types of things. And I think that that local focus is really really key. What what do you think? One of the most exciting um, policy recommendations you have in here on this uh, capital question is. I mean, I see a few of these things in here that are some of the more federal um, level, but what, what can communities do?
2: Yeah, I mean, as you noted, uh, there's there are important banking policies at the national level that we need to change uh, to really break up these big banks. And Uh, and and restructure our financial system. But we don't have to wait for Congress. Um, We can start acting at the local level. And I think one of the more exciting policy tools that we see out there is the idea of starting a public partnership bank. Um, We've written a lot about the Bank of North Dakota, which is the only publicly owned bank in the country. It's a kind of a wholesale bank, you could say. It actually partners with local banks and makes local banks and credit unions much stronger as a result of that partnership. So North Dakota is a state where 83% of the deposits in the state are held by locally owned banks and credit unions. That's compared to uh, less than 25% nationally. So a really big difference. And North Dakota also has... Um, much higher levels of small business lending and lending to farms than any other state does. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. Um, this is a model in North Dakota that's been around for decades and decades. It dates back to about 1919. Um, but now, what we're seeing is a lot of cities are beginning to look at this and saying, you know, if North Dakota can do this, then we can do this at the city level. So we know Oakland is talking about this, Santa Fe is looking at it. And in fact, this fall, residents of Los Angeles are actually going to vote on whether or not to establish a city-owned bank. Um, But that's the kind of, you know, it's a really great solution to basically taking control back from Wall Street and bringing our financial capacity back to our communities.
0: Yeah, and it seems like such a sea change to kind of say, you know, there's actually this focus um, locally on, on on what's going to be best for the community. And, um, you know, even if you can bring it from, you know, Wall Street to uh, Bismarck, you know, that's a little bit closer, you know, to your hometown, that type of thing. And I think that that's really exciting. Um, and it's good to see good local activism um, kind of burgeoning this this momentum. I know that our research on the Bank of North Dakota gets cited all over the place when they're talking about these types of things. So that's good to see. Um, and that kind of transitions kind of nicely into another plank of this, um, which is the, the built environment that supports these local businesses. You know, you need a better um, development to, to enable small businesses, more walkable communities, those types of things. So maybe you could just give us a sense, Olivia, on what this built environment question looks like for small uh, communities and big communities as well
1: really, you know, in a similar way as as when we're talking about what types of businesses can access capital, the built environment has a lot of impact on the types of businesses that are able to succeed. Um, and when we're talking about the built environment, you know, we're talking about how big are the storefronts? Uh, what, what types of buildings are getting built? Um, how are places connected? Is it, is it uh, sidewalks? Is it really car-oriented? Um, and all of these questions, they're impacted a lot by decisions that cities make. Um, and it also gives cities and, and other forms of local governments a lot of capacity to shape them. Independent businesses, they generally do really well in a built environment that is varied, is diverse, is walkable, uh, made up of a a lot of storefronts of different sizes and and particularly small sizes. Cities can, you know, design an environment that, that looks like that. So in our guide, we have a a bunch of different examples of um, different tools to use here. There are policies that cities can use to encourage commercial diversity. So to say, um, you know, we want a lot of different types of of businesses. And there are also policies they can use to ensure that new construction includes space that is appropriate for locally owned businesses um, and not just, you know, the kind of uh, Big spaces that are much more suited to a national chain and not accessible to them, um, both because those spaces are more expensive um, and because it's it's a somewhat different kind of business model. And, you know, one thing about these built environment policies, too, is that they kind of work as solutions to a range of different problems. Um, so some communities are, are trying to revitalize downtowns and, and figure out ways to bring businesses into vacant storefronts. and. Others have uh, a lot of development and rapid investment and are trying to figure out how to mitigate displacement or ensure that uh, that growth is kind of distributed equitably. Um, But a lot of the built environment tools that we talk about in this plank of the policy guide work kind of for both situations and for a range of situations in between them.
0: So it seems like a really solid way to move forward in a place that, um, you know, maybe there hasn't been a lot of development in the past, but you want to kind of revitalize an area. I think that that's really smart. Um, There's a number of different things on here, policies that you can do, um, talking about community ownership of these spaces, talking about um, reusing maybe empty box stores that have left or something like that. There's a really, uh, there's an interesting opportunity, it seems, in a lot of communities um, that we hear about all the time in the news to kind of take back some of these spaces, I think. I'm glad that you're able to offer so many different things. Um, I'll note that for, for listeners of the podcast, we also interviewed uh, Anne-Marie Rogers, who is in San Francisco that helped develop a formula business restriction, as well as uh, Chuck Marone of Strong Towns, who talks a lot about um, good, solid um, development in cities and talks about maybe where people have gone wrong in the past. So it seems to me as well that some of these development programs, you know, they they necessitate a little bit of an uh, infusion of cash, some 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 tax dollars that are going to be able to help build some of that um, that new development program and, and those solid things for for the community. So, Stacey, can you kind of get into the the tax system? I know it seems like that's a big question, but what what can local communities do to improve their situation?
2: How we structure our tax system has a lot of impact on business and on the economy. And so just to give you a couple of examples of how this is playing out right now, uh, one example is that we have a lot of loopholes um, in our corporate income tax system, both at the federal level and in many cases also at the state level. Um, One of the consequences of these loopholes is that a lot of global companies are able to pay much lower tax rates than independent businesses are. Uh, Amazon, for example, um, benefits from what a Newsweek uh, investigative reporter has described as an extremely advantageous tax rate by virtue of having subsidiaries in Europe and elsewhere where it shifts around its profits and thereby gets out of having to pay uh, income taxes on those profits. Over the last five years, Amazon's paid an average effective tax rate of 11% which, just to give you a sense, is you know a typical independent retailer you know, without a subsidiary in Luxembourg or the Cayman Islands, um, they're paying twice or three times as high a federal tax rate as Amazon is. So it's a very unlevel playing field. And to just take a very different and, and very local kind of example of how this plays out, um, if you think about our property tax system, So property taxes supply a large share of the revenue that local governments rely on. How we structure our property tax system really has a lot of implications for the built environment and then ultimately uh, independent businesses. Uh, One example of this is that we typically don't tax land at a very high rate. We tax the value of the building. And so what that means is that a big box store with a huge acres and acres of parking around it, that's relatively low value. It's a cheap building, parking lots are not expensive, and so the amount of tax revenue that a typical big box store pays is quite low per acre, um, whereas if you have a mixed use, multi-story downtown building you know, with either underground parking or no parking, that per acre is a lot of property tax revenue. And likewise, uh, there's a disparity. The big box store costs a lot more in terms of the services that you have to provide to it because it's so sprawling. Everything that it needs is a lot more uh, intensive use of the services, whereas that compact downtown block doesn't require nearly as much expenditure and services. So the result of this kind of favorable treatment of the big box stores and the property tax system is that that type of development is in, essentially incentive and is cheaper uh, to create. We could think about reversing this. Say we made surface parking lots super expensive from a property tax standpoint. Say we actually valued land uh, as a, a higher share of the overall property tax bill. That would change those dynamics, and it would make that kind of development less attractive, and it would make the mixed-use, small-scale, walkable development more attractive. So those are a couple of examples, and in our policy toolkit, we talk more about um, this issue of how, how cities and, and states and federal government can approach the issue of taxes, but that gives you a sense of why this matters and, and the landscape that's out there.
0: Yeah, and I think that this uh, this policy guide does a really good job of helping unglaze people's eyes uh, when you're talking about a tax system. I think that it's a really useful way to think about it that, you know, we have a certain tax system, and, you know, people complain about it all the time, um, or they have lots of opinions on it. But, you know, we are valuing certain entities over others when we when we're valuing, you know, big surface parking lots and giant big box stores um, less for property tax purposes, then, you know, more vital independent businesses and mixed use uh, development. I think that that's a really useful thing for our audience to to kind of hear because it almost inherently says, you know, you look at a a local hardware store or you look at a local printing shop, you know, there are spillover benefits. You look at a local, I should say, a not very local, uh, you know, Best Buy store or something like that. And you're saying, well, I don't really know what the spillover benefits are besides like if my like nephew works there or something like that. Um, And I think that it's like a useful thing that, you know, those are not parts of the community in the ways that independent businesses are. You know, along the that same track of those big box stores, I'm kind of wondering there's a plank in here about um economic development incentives that I think kind of fits nicely with this and kind of fits nicely with some of the conversations that we've been having on this podcast about, you know, what kinds of, of retail we we preference. And I'm hoping you can get into that a little bit, Olivia.
1: This plank of the policy guide, it's, it's all about how to reform economic development um, because we need to reform it. We need to change how we do it. Right now, local and state governments spend just so much money every year subsidizing large companies. You know, sometimes it's a 20-year tax incentive. Uh, sometimes it's a—it's saying, okay, you don't have to pay property taxes uh, if you build on this location. Sometimes it's making improvements to the location. Um, sometimes it's a, you know, direct handout.
0: The Amazon HQ2 plank.
1: <laughs> exactly. Right. Estimates put the the figure of all of these handouts at about seventy billion dollars annually. And uh, research has also found that this money flows disproportionately to the biggest competitors. One study from our allies at Good Jobs First found that even in economic development programs that say they're open to businesses of all sizes, it's still large companies that are getting you know the overwhelming portion of subsidies from those programs. And a lot of other research has found that, you know, on metrics like job creation and, and other really uh, vital ways to measure these programs, um, they also aren't even that effective. They, they don't work that well. How do we rethink economic development? in the? Guide, we go over a few ideas um, and they cover, you know, okay, sharply reducing incentives and and subsidies that go to economic development, but in cases where they are still used, making them a lot more transparent and more equitably available to different types of businesses. The ideas include ways to uh, make economic development more about investing in the kinds of public goods that benefit all employers. And then finally, uh, some of the ideas here also include ways to make kind of targeted public investments, uh, particularly in communities that have been economically marginalized. One of the examples that we give kind of in in that area is uh, it's a program in Pennsylvania, uh, the Pennsylvania Fresh Food Financing Initiative. And this was a, a loan program that was seeded with state funding uh, that provided financing for more than 80 grocery stores in low-income neighborhoods in both urban and rural parts of the state. And it's kind of a, a great example of how you know, public financing was involved here, but it, uh, it worked to advance multiple goals that were in the public interest um, along with economic development.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me, you know, that there are a number of ways that giving large companies um, these kinds of incentives, these public subsidies, just kind of shoot these communities in the foot. Um, they, they reduce their, their tax revenue so that they can't, you know, implement other economic development programs. And, you know, just to entice a certain amount of small jobs like Foxconn in Wisconsin, or, you know, a lot of these cities vying for Amazon HQ2. There's a lot of downsides to trying to just attract these large companies when in a lot of ways, it's choking out some of the really great things in independent uh, businesses and retailers that could actually be improving the, the local economy and kind of making it more resilient overall. Because if that plant or if that larger company shuts down, um, leaves, decides that it's more economic to do something somewhere else, you know, from a faraway decision, then that community can be devastated. I think that's something that, um, Stacy, you've, you've, written a lot about in terms of Walmart overbuilding and then kind of retracting back as well as we see uh, moving forward. So I think that that's like a really useful plank for this saying that if you don't do these local things, your community could really be harmed.
2: I think that's absolutely right, and you know, just this week I saw a story that I tweeted about. You know, a community where Walmart came in uh, several decades ago, and the entire downtown just about was wiped out. It used to be a place that you know it had a central square, a historic square, and there were lots of different kinds of businesses on that square. Walmart showed up in the 1980s, and uh, most of those businesses disappeared. And now today, Walmart's actually leaving. They've decided to get out of this town. Uh, they're not making enough money there apparently and are just going to go somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, as we think about these policies, it really is about how do you build a resilient community and how do you have a, a level of community self determination, really, about your future. I mean, I think this is one of the most. You know, sort of profound feelings that you encounter out in the country right now is that a lot of people and a lot of communities really feel that they're at the mercy of these outside forces. And, you know, a, a big part of what we're working on here at ILSR is what are the tools you need to take charge of your local economy and to actually have ownership and decision making local um, and have that control into the future.
0: So the final plank of this, uh, this guide talks about um, promoting fair and open competition, and I think we've touched on it in all the different other sections. I'm wondering what that more systemic perspective looks like when we're talking about these policies at the local, state, and federal level to promote open competition.
1: Yeah, you know, back
2: in the 1970s and 80s, we really had this sea change in the ideological thinking behind our our economic policy. And as a result of that, we radically altered how we interpret and enforce our antitrust laws. And we also changed a lot of other sector-specific laws about our banking sector, about our media sector, you know, we used to really embrace the idea through much of the 20th century that policy ought to work to decentralize economic power, to structure the economy in ways that opened up opportunity, that encouraged competition, that created more room for people to come in and find work, find jobs, that there was a greater diversity and dynamism. That was the goal. And also that we really wanted to Um, have uh, economic capacity dispersed across all the different regions and areas of the country, that having it highly centralized in specific companies and specific locations was not good for the country and was not good for democracy. So that was um, sort of the reigning thinking for many decades through the 20th century. And that really shifted quite uh, radically uh, beginning in the 1970s. And so the last plank of our policy guide is really about how we need to reclaim competition policy, antitrust, and really make this idea of an equitable, decentralized economy, once again, you know, central to how we uh, interpret these laws and how we make uh, new laws in this area. So a big part of that, as I've I've already described, is that we need to reform antitrust in a big way. And and we've, of course, talked about that in a number of different episodes of this podcast, but there are other things too. And I, and some of the kinds of ideas that we talk about at the state and local level include things like uh, having a pharmacy ownership law. Um, And we highlight North Dakota as a really innovative state that has prohibited pharmacies from being owned by corporations. If you want to operate a pharmacy in the state of North Dakota, you have to be a pharmacist. Um, And the result is that they have a pharmacy, uh, network that is entirely made up of locally owned independent pharmacies, and our research has found deliver lower prices and better outcomes than what you see in other states. We also highlight ways to approach this at the local level. Um, you know we talked a little bit earlier about formula business ordinances, so an example of that is in Jersey City, um, where the downtown area they have a, an ordinance that says that no more than thirty percent of the ground floor retail space can be inhabited by formula businesses or chains. And so they have a way of essentially saying, we know that chains have a lot of advantages in this market. We know that real estate and financing all work to favor chains. And this is a law that ensures that there's going to be ample room for independent businesses and that we really have a balanced, dynamic, open uh, economy for those businesses to thrive.
0: Yeah, and it's so it's so great, because I think that all the different planks of this policy guide kind of feed into this more open competition, promoting this kind of fair and open competition. Um, And I think another thing that a lot of folks um, really maybe get from our work and some of our allies work is kind of just pointing out all the ways that monopolies kind of rule our lives. Um, I think that it's a really useful thing. You know, when you think about airlines, when you think about I mean, one of our co founders favorite example is toothpaste, when you think about beer, all these types of things are really ruled by monopolies and pointing these things out and making people aware of them, uh, is really important from like, just like the kind of personal level. Um, I know I've had many conversations with people in my life, you know, where they had no idea that, um, you know, all these different, uh, I'll use a personal example, beers, uh, are owned by the same company. Um, and it's just useful to kind of point out and say, you know, there is really something we can do about this. And there is something that we can, um, encourage our elected officials to do encourage our local leaders to do, um, as well as, uh, people at the state houses all throughout the country. And I think that these are a number of really, really great recommendations um, for all of our listeners to kind of print out, bring to their city councils, to their state legislature, to their um, elected officials on the federal level as well.
2: That's absolutely right. And and as I said earlier, at the top of the podcast, this is a resource that's going to be growing over time. You know, this is our first collection of what we have, and we know there are more things that we're going to be adding to it. So really encourage people to check back and also to sign up for our Hometown Advantage newsletter if you want to keep up with new research and new developments that we're adding to this policy toolkit.
1: One thing I'll add there, too, is that uh, this policy guide is um, it's kind of an entryway into a lot more uh, depth and a lot of other resources about all of this. Um, So we've mentioned, you know, some of the specific policy tools that we have within each of these five categories. And listeners, when you go to the guide, you'll see. All of those specific tools are links, and uh, they take you to a page that does a, a deep dive on these individual policies too, including examples of communities that have implemented them and the exact text of what the policy looks like in that community. Um, so we hope that uh, you know this this guide offers some ways to be hands on too and to um, really get the the tools you might need to start thinking about this or uh, doing it in your own communities.
0: So thank you so much for kind of going through this policy guide with us. I really appreciate it. Um, And as we move into the last segment here, the reading recommendation, I want to do something a little bit different and uh, kind of prompt you with a big question since we've been talking a lot about big questions uh, this podcast. Um, If you can give our readers a recommendation on something that you read or experienced recently that kind of changed how you viewed the world.
1: The first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, kind of a an experience and something I read. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, at the end of May, beginning of June, um, here in Maine, there is an annual fish migration of uh, a, a type of fish called an alewife. One night just after work, I, uh, I hiked out to a river, and uh, there were just... Thousands of these fish um, along the river, and and kind of gathered in one of the pools there. And the really kind of amazing thing about this is, you know, I, I went home and uh, started to read more about this fish migration, and it was actually interrupted for many years by dams along the river that I had gone out to. Um, and reading about uh, those dams, and then the real kind of local and, and grassroots effort to uh, remove those dams and to restore this fish migration. It was a, I thought it was a really good example, hopeful example of um, local activism and the kind of change that people can make on the local level.
0: That's great. Stacy.
1: Well, mine's a little
2: bit different. Mine's more in the category of just having a moment of pure wonder and leaving it at that for your mental health it's a mental health break uh, which is drop whatever you're doing right now and go to the new york times website and watch this video about how spiders fly it's astonishing Um, it's not just some spiders that fly lots of spiders fly and they fly for miles and they can cross oceans and they do it by extending this little piece of their uh silk thread I, you know, I'm I'm probably explaining the physics wrong, but it's kind of like a really good parachute so that they actually stay aloft and they can float for miles and miles and miles on currents of air. Um, and there's this incredible video of it.
0: <laughs> Alewife fish and flying spiders. I love it. Those are <laughs> changing the way you see the world. Uh, thank you so much to both Sace and Olivia for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Nick. It was great to be here. Thanks for the discussion, Nick.
0: And thank all of you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find all the links to what we discussed today, including the policy guide, at ILSR.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, you can help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast, gets us great guests like Stacey and Olivia, and produce original research on the way monopolies are impacting our economy. Once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and me, Nick Stummelanger. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Nick Stummelanger, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.